Why should a child be afraid to go to school? It was almost like catnip for, for TV producers. They could just go to Boston or these other cities, put their cameras on white protesters, and that became the image that got seared in the minds of American viewers. The Black community was furious that, um, that it was a coordinated effort to disenfranchise them and sort of steal back political power. There was definitely resentment. And so is, is that racist? The real story is overshadowed by sort of a mythical oversimplification. This is Disintegration, a podcast looking back at one of the most painful chapters in Boston's history, the desegregation of Boston public schools in the 1970s. I'm Jesse Remedios. And I'm Valerie Wences. We'll also take a look at where Boston is today, how much has the city changed in the past five decades? Or does it deserve its reputation as one of the most racist cities in America? In the next few episodes of Disintegration, we're going to look for solutions, ways to make Boston a less racially divided city. Some changes were already underway when busing was forced on the city, but there's a lot of work left to do. Up next, our colleague Marla Hiller returns with one attempt at integration, make the suburbs part of the solution. After looking at the violence and devastation of Boston's attempt at desegregation busing in the 1970s and 80s, we would hope that at least something good came of it eventually. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Boston public schools are still segregated, and integration is no longer a matter of mixing students between Roxbury and South Boston, but rather the city and the suburbs. In this episode, we'll learn about the changing demographics in Boston and Boston schools, the current state of segregation in Boston public schools, and potential ways we can integrate Boston schools. The population of Boston public schools is mismatched to the population of the city. As of 2019, 44.9% of Boston was white. Only 14% of Boston public schools were white. In 2019, 22.2% of Boston's population was black, and 33% of Boston public schools were black. So why is the city population not represented in public schools? Peter Sorozak of Boston Indicators a research center at the Boston Foundation, explained this stark difference in demographics. A lot of white families, particularly middle-income and higher-income families, leave the city when their kids turn five, if they do not get into the schools they want. And they go to suburban school districts that kind of see, have seen some, some amount of growth. If they get into the schools they want, what we, or, or they're unable to leave, then they tend to kind of stick around. But that there's a pretty big drop between like the under five-year-old white share of the population as compared to the next uh, kind of school age groups. And why do parents decide to move out to the suburban public schools instead of staying in Boston's public schools? Because there's a perception that suburban schools are higher performing, according to Sorozak, who says that this perception isn't based on any data. A lot of kind of this perception of better schools in the suburbs is not really borne out in like data, really. Boston's Boston schools are still quite good on par with, in many cases, like schools in the suburbs. But there's a kind of a well-documented effect of white families 
perceiving schools with higher Black and Latino populations or Black populations specifically as not doing as well, despite the condition of the school, despite overall grades of the school and overall kind of capability of graduation of the school. Mark Melnick, the director of economic and public policy research at the UMass Donahue Institute, believes that school segregation is not just a matter of schools. It is deeply connected to neighborhood integration and housing prices in Boston. I think part of the the issue from my mind, uh, the integration question of schools is one of neighborhood integration. And I think that that is that means having a variety of affordable housing options in all of our neighborhoods. Rich people live in Beacon Hill, poor people live in Eastie, you know, and these kinds of things will naturally create a certain level of uh, of school segregation. So to me, it, it comes back to affordable housing and making it such that people are uh, able to afford to live in any of Boston's neighborhoods. And to Melnick, affordable housing is a politically palatable idea since it not only appeals to low-income Boston residents, but also to some people who are well-off financially. An argument about affordable housing is a win, right? Everyone can, everyone has this challenge with, with the housing prices. You know, even middle-income or upper-middle-income people are still spending a, re- a ridiculous amount of their income towards their housing when you compare it to other places. So Boston schools are segregated, and the kids who live in Boston and attend public school in the city are demographically very different from the rest of Boston's population. Of course, we can't create a school integration program based strictly on race since it's unconstitutional, but across the river in Cambridge, they've started using an integration system based on income, which Soros Act says serves as kind of a proxy for race. Cambridge does an interesting thing where they do kind of integrate students based on income, which is an interesting proxy and has resulted in a kind of a better integrated Cambridge system. but. Cambridge also has more white kids relative to their student population than Boston. That proxy actually works pretty well. Susan Eaton is a professor at the Heller School for Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University. She says Cambridge is one model, but she said that we also need to make a conscious effort to acknowledge and address racial disparities in schools. That it's important to to make efforts to have racial diversity and ethnic diversity on purpose because of the history of discrimination and lingering effects of discrimination in our country. And the fact that it's important for young people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds to get to know each other and to learn about each other's backgrounds and develop empathy and understanding. One program that does tackle race head on is the Metropolitan Council for Educational Opportunity, also known as METCO. Eaton explained what METCO is and how it started. So METCO is a voluntary school desegregation program that was started in 1966 by a group of mostly moms, some dads, and some elected leaders in the suburbs who wanted to create more diversity in the suburban communities. It enables students of color from Boston to attend what are still predominantly white segregated schools in suburban communities. In the 2019-2020 school year, METCO enrolled 335 students, according to that year's report. Jamie Gass of the Pioneer Institute, a Massachusetts research center that supports choice schools, says that METCO is an incredibly successful program and helps to integrate schools in the Boston suburbs. 
the academic performance of the kids in Medco is amazing. The graduation rates are amazing and significantly higher than the Boston Public Schools. And there's what, you know, 30 or so sending or receiving districts. And in most of those districts, the diversity that is represented in those districts for Medco kids in many instances is 80, 90 percent of the diversity in the whole district. Right. So if you couldn't, I mean, it's almost like a reverse desegregation effort where you're sending poor and minority kids who would be in a district that is generally pretty low performing or chronically underperforming, sending them to districts to into a district that's largely white, very uh, wealthy and not diverse, you know, not diverse at all. But the response to Mecco is mixed, with some participants saying that the program changed their lives, while others say that students of color faced racism and bullying when attending predominantly white schools. Surozak explained the mixed feelings about Metco. What you wind up with in many instances is like school districts will say, OK, we'll take X amount of Metco students and we'll distribute them across our student population. And you wind up with students who are isolated because they are the only students of color. And that doesn't help the students necessarily. And that doesn't help the school districts, really. So it's kind of a, Metco is a really hot button topic. And while started with the best of intention, it's not clear that it is really kind of doing what it needs to be doing or is performing the way it was intended to perform. But there are differences of opinion on that. According to Eaton, suburban schools and communities need to be able to adapt to new students and be welcoming in order for METCO to reach its fullest potential. He need to make sure that if indeed African-American and other students of color are going to be coming to suburban communities, that those suburban communities can adapt and change and be truly welcoming and inclusive and equitable spaces for those students. Despite efforts like METCO and in Cambridge, Boston is still not a truly integrated system. Is there any way to integrate Boston schools at this point with so many white families living in the suburbs? And if it is possible, what do we need to do to make it happen? Sorozak says integration is a, quote, wicked problem. Not wicked as in wicked smart, but a wicked problem as in a social problem that's very difficult or impossible to solve. It's, it's really a tough, very, very tough problem that has no clear answer. But it's, it's kind of a wicked problem in that it has many different reasons for being the way it is. And there is no like silver bullet that will solve it without kind of causing knockoff effects. So I don't have any good answer for like what will solve or how, you know, Boston can integrate more successfully. And I'm not sure anyone does really. Despite Sorozak thinking that school desegregation might be a nearly impossible problem to solve, both he and Eaton posited the same beginning to a solution, creating a regional school system. But thinking of school districts as like trying to teach kids in like a more regional kind of sense might be a good way of uh, addressing some of the inequality that we see in schools, in individual schools. If Brookline were a part of Boston, if Cambridge and Somerville and kind of maybe Watertown were all part of like a regional school system, 
resources could be distributed more effectively. We have different student body populations. It's possible we could even get at some of the kind of the integration that we've seen in the past. But the kind of integration that we saw at the end of the busing era is, is honestly would be extremely difficult nowadays because we have so few white kids. We have so few Asian kids in our schools. Eaton also thinks that creating a regional school system could be a step in the right direction, as well as focusing on including the segregated suburban schools and communities in the process of integrating schools, rather than only focusing on the city of Boston. So I think that it's important to think about this in a broader way. So to think about the region as a whole, because we're not going to be able to, because of the history of of racial discrimination in housing, we still live in a very segregated metropolitan region. And so now we have this situation on our hands where we have what we call segregated schools in Boston, but we also have segregated schools in the suburban communities. So in order for anything to change, we need to think of integration as a regional project, as something that all the communities around Boston have an interest in achieving as an aspiration for all of us. But Melnick has some reservations about a regional school system, namely how students would be transported around the region. The challenge, of course, is transportation and moving kids around and having it work within the parent's schedule and these kinds of things. So, you know, for example, my kid's school is a mile from her house. I, it's a very comfortable way of getting them on the bus or, or how we pick them up or these kinds of things. And so I would worry a little bit about these scenarios where kids are spending 40 minutes on a bus to and fro. But the ultimate hurdle to working towards integrating schools is pushing the issue to the front of the political agenda. Eaton explains why this is so difficult. School integration simply isn't on the radar for affluent people in the area. And politicians tend to work on issues important to the people who can give them money. Moreover, affluent people are paying high property taxes in the suburbs to pay for those good schools. I think that affluent people think that they're benefiting from having their kids right in a, you know, high income school that's privileged. So so that's that's one thing. There's not like a huge push from them. <laughs> and um, elected leaders don't tend to gear themselves toward doing things that affluent people don't want done. Right. People with power, people with a strong political voice. How we integrate Boston schools is a complicated question. And as we've seen, using one solution like busing fails to remedy the deeper issues that result in segregated schools. But even in the face of such a difficult problem, there are people like Eaton, Milnick, Surzak, and Gass working hard to gather information and develop potential solutions. Integrating Boston schools is possible. It'll just be hard. Thanks to our colleague Marla Hiller, who produced that episode. Disintegration is a production of Podcasting 101 at Boston University's College of Communication. I'm Valerie Wences. And I'm Jesse Remedios. Thanks for listening.